It's Thursday, February the 17th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whelan. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter, Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow doing podcasting these days. If you don't believe me, go to Hoover's website, www.hoover.org, and check out our list of podcasts we offer. There's Econ Talk, Law Talk, The Grumpy Economist, even an audio version of The Good Fellow Show that I do each week. If you want to subscribe, very simple. Just go to the Publications tab on our homepage. Click on where it says Podcast. You can subscribe to any of them. You can also sign up for our monthly Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our work to you each and every month. Hoover Podcast is one aspect of Ideas Defining a Free Society. I'm going to start this podcast today by telling you a story. It's a true story. It's uh, near Hollywood, but it's actually fact, not fiction. It's a story of one man's journey in life. It starts in Wall Street, where he's a successful financier. His journey then takes a twist. As government calls upon him, he joins the Treasury Department. He goes to Russia to help Boris Yeltsin turn his economy around. Our lead character then comes back to America. He engages investment banking, does very well. Here, the story takes an unexpected twist. One day, he's riding a bicycle, and he has an accident that damn near kills him. He breaks his neck. Once again, fate intervenes. As our as our lead, uh, lead character is recovering from his injury, he gets a call from the mayor of Los Angeles saying, please come down to City Hall and help me. In 2010, he is named first deputy mayor of Los Angeles. The jobs are in charge of 13 city departments plus the Port of Los Angeles. If that's not enough of an advertisement as a glutton for punishment in 2014, our lead character is named publisher and CEO of the Los Angeles Times. But the story doesn't end there. In 2018, our lead character is selected as superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. He has the dubious honor of, of having to lead the second largest public school district in America through COVID. And finally, one last chapter, and then we're going to uh, introduce you to our guest today. In 2022, uh, our character is now back involved in public service. He is uh, leading an initiative, spearheading an effort to restore state funding of student arts program. Those of you who live in or around Los Angeles already know who I'm talking about. It is, of course, Austin Butner. He is our guest today on our podcast. Austin, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate being there. By the way, you missed the first chapter of the story, which is perhaps uh, the American dream. My dad came to this country as an immigrant on a boat. My mom taught public school. Uh, and it's the public education and the opportunity to find a good paying job that provided the foundation for everything that came since. So you joined about halfway through the journey, I guess. That's right. You're a Michigander. Uh, Michigander via New York, New Jersey, Atlanta, St. Louis, uh, before Michigan. So I'm a child of the 60s, sort of not the Berkeley protest 60s, but the immigrant 60s, which is you moved as your family sought better paying opportunities. So our listeners should know that I have known you for the at least a decade. I met you right after you took the job at City Hall. I remember meeting you for the first time and coming away with uh, one of two impressions. Either number one, this guy is hide, his heart is in the right place. Or number two, they need to go back and re-examine his head. What is he doing working in City Hall? So which is an Austin harder head? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, that good education, good paying job, uh, that's my mission. Maybe I took a bit of a bump on the head in my uh, mountain biking accident. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, listen, if anybody listening has a chance to give back, whether it's an hour a week, change the world, find a way to get involved. Uh, I find too much of the conversation, too much of the narrative is about the big idea or encouraging someone else to do something. Mm -hmm. If you're able uh, you have agency, get involved. Uh, and that has been my guiding light for a long, long time. 
I'd like to spend a few minutes on Los Angeles, Austin, then get into your LAUSD experience, and then I want to talk about the initiatives. So first, let's look at the city in which you live. Uh, last Saturday was the filing deadline for mayoral candidates. There's a mayor's election this year. You did not uh, choose to run. I'd like to hear why you decided not to run. But let's look at LA in a bigger picture, Austin. It is in a very difficult spot these days. Uh, just chronic problems having to do with homelessness and just managing the city. You have a mayor who has one foot out the doors. He is uh, waiting to be confirmed as U.S. ambassador to India. Uh, it's a city that cries for leadership, no? Yeah, I, you know, I think root cause of many of the issues we struggle from in Los Angeles is leadership. Uh, whether it is the challenge of homelessness where uh, the U.N. special advisor on the human condition came to Los Angeles uh, and spoke how shocked he was. And this is a man who's traveled the world and seen some of the worst conditions in which humans live. Uh, rising crime, rising property crime, uh, senseless murders of elderly women at home in the middle of the night. Uh, and the litany goes on from there, Bill. Uh, you know, we had a spill, a sewage spill, raw sewage into the Santa Monica Bay uh, a few months ago from a city operated municipal plant Two months later, we hear, well, it could have been prevented. Well, when we say city, ultimately it goes to city leadership, the leaders we elect to make something work. Uh, and to me, that's fundamentally primary leadership. And we saw, we'll talk a little bit later about schools, but it can be different. The money's there. We don't need new laws. We don't need new rules. We need effective leaders to get up in the morning and say, this is the problem I'm gonna solve. This is how we're gonna go about it. We may all not be happy necessarily, but Los Angeles is in desperate need of some tough love to address the problems. Now, is this a function also of individuals, just the luck of the draw and who's the mayor, or is this a larger question about the system of government itself? Uh, well, I, I think it is the system, and I don't mean structurally the system, I, I just mean the group of people uh, yeah. who sit in these chairs. You know, we have a royal uh, flush of corruption in City Hall. Three different city council people either indicted or convicted, a deputy mayor indicted, uh, a former head of uh, the Department of Water and Power uh, convicted, uh, and the list goes on and on. And you go, what is it about public service in Los Angeles that people have lost the notion that they're there to serve the public, not their own interest? Mm -hmm. uh, and by serving the public, it's ultimately about what have you done? What have you done to make life better uh, for ordinary Angelinos? And unfortunately, it's been going in the wrong direction. I'm aware of a poll that was done just a couple months back, and more than two-thirds of people in Los Angeles think the community is going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a wake-up call. Uh, now, all of the talent exists. We're blessed with Los Angeles. We're the most diverse part of our nation. We are where America typically comes to see its future. Uh, we have entrepreneurs and technologists and entertainers and storytellers, uh, a vast talent pool that I believe uh, uh, if you ask, roll up their sleeves and get involved and help. And if we don't get engaged, if, if the average voter doesn't view themselves as having something at stake in a local election, uh, I don't think it's going to change, but it does very much need to change. And I think it can. And I think there's a chance for Los Angeles to again, lead the nation. But you decided not to run. Now you have a very good resume for running and also you have wealth. So you could have self-financed. So you would not have been beholden to special interest. Why, why did you decide not to do it? It's very personal for me. I'm 61. Mm -hmm. uh, just coming off three years of service as a superintendent of a large, messy urban school district, which was a seven-day-a-week, 15-hour-a-day job. And 
it sounds sort of uh, uh, a little bit exaggerated. It really was. Get up at six o'clock in the morning, go to work, get home at nine o'clock at night and do that again every day. And I got four kids, lovely wife. Uh, and I think I want to have a little bit of balance in my life. Um, again, we'll talk a little bit about what we're doing to bring arts and music back to schools. I'm not giving up on Los Angeles. I'm still going to be involved in the public good. I get an immense reward personally from that. But to be the mayor, it is a seven day, seven day, 15 hour a day job, 24 seven. And we need that kind of commitment in public leadership and just in candid self-reflection, I say, I'm not prepared to do that for the next five or nine years. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 61 and there will be another chapter. I'll continue to try and make a difference. Uh, but that's what it takes. It doesn't take it for six months to get elected and then coast. Uh, it doesn't take it for a year or two till you decide you want to run for another office. It doesn't take it for uh, four years until you give up uh, and uh, start uh, burnishing your credentials for the next. It takes someone to get up every morning and say, okay, I'm prepared to lead. I'm prepared to bring together people with diverse views on the topic, get to an answer and make sure it happens. Uh, and I just personally, that's more of a commitment that I can make. And I think voters deserve a hundred percent commitment from whoever they elect as mayor. You can tell me if you plan to endorse anybody, Austin, but what are you looking for in a candidate? What, what will it take to sell you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I have an open mind. Uh, I've sort of articulated publicly already three topics that I'd like to see this individual address. First, how do you intend to solve the problem in detail? The goal is not a plan. And by the way, a plan, if it's not implemented, is worth the paper it's written on. So give me some specifics on how you're going to solve the problem. Let's say homelessness, for instance. Don't tell me you're going to study it. Then you're not qualified to be mayor. Tell me what your plan is and try to instill in all of us a confidence that that plan can be implemented. Now, the second is tell me about your life experience. Where in your lived experience have you shown you can solve a complex problem? Public sector, private sector, maybe some combination, both would be a good thing. Uh, but don't tell me uh, you've identified a problem and therefore I should have confidence in you to go do it. Anyone who thinks they ought to be mayor should have in their own lived experience demonstrated the ability to solve a complex problem, to make something happen, to break eggs, to make an omelet, if you will. So that's the second. And the third, show me where you've brought people with different views on a topic together, convince them that it's not perfect. Someone's got to compromise. Maybe all of us have to compromise to get to a solution because let's face it, if the answers are so easy as are ob easy or obvious, I'm sure they would have been done already. They're not. And, you know, I, I kid, because I've spoken, I know all of those who are running for mayor. Uh, the first question I asked them, I said, are you prepared to make anybody unhappy tomorrow? And they said, what do you mean? I said, the job of mayor, it's nitty gritty. It's roll up your sleeves. It is fix the problem, whether it's fix the pothole, address the broader societal challenges uh, from homelessness or anything in between. Don't think you're going to get 100% support in anything you do. So you're going to get up in the morning and make somebody unhappy with what you did. And your job is to make sure they understand why you did it and to bring them along as you get on to the next. So those three things, Bill. First is, do you have a plan? Is it really going to be something that can happen? Second, do you have anything in your lived experience which would give me confidence you can implement? And then third, show me how you bring people together from dissenting viewpoints and get them to agree that a, a partial solution is better than nothing at all. So you have until June to make up your mind because that's when the city's primary is. But uh, there was a vote on Tuesday here in San Francisco, Austin, involving education, uh, your past job. And uh, in this particular election, it was a recall election. Three members of San Francisco's board, school board were tossed. And 
tossed as maybe a soft way to put it, Austin. I think they all received uh, a 70% or no more vote in a very overwhelmingly progressive city. A lot's been made about uh, public sentiment toward education, Austin. This uh, Glenn Youngkin's uh, uh, victory in the Virginia governor's race uh, last fall. Do you buy into this narrative that the narrative basically that there are angry parents out there that's a backlash against education? Well, I, I, let's let's parse through that a little bit, Bill. Um, well, first of all, let's you watch. How do you interpret the San Francisco results? First of all, uh, well, if I lived in San Francisco, I would have been uh, walking precincts trying to get voters to vote for the recall. For what reason? Uh, having lived the experience in public schools during the pandemic, uh, when I would read in newspaper accounts of a school board talking about renaming schools, taking Abraham Lincoln or Diane Feinstein's name off the school mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. Let's put aside how you have that conversation, whether it's the right conversation. It's just a total abdication of their responsibility or, or not a full understanding of what one is supposed to do as a school board member. And I think there are some systemic issues with elected school boards of very large, complex uh, school systems. Uh, I, you know, I challenge any of your listeners, or I'd frankly challenge any of the school board members in San Francisco or any other elected school board members, just tell me in short what you think your job is. Because uh, it's when I took the job as superintendent, it's the first job I've ever taken where the job description of superintendent uh, wasn't written, not defined, uh, and the job description of those who were in effect were my bosses. And it's seven in Los Angeles. I, I don't know. I think it's a, a different number in, in San Francisco, perhaps. Uh, but if you ask each board member what their job was, I'll bet you get different answers from each of them. And that's crazy. That makes no sense. So I don't know that it necessarily you can tie San Francisco to Virginia and say, uh, you know, throw out all the bums. Um, my takeaway from the lessons of the pandemic is slightly different, which is we can no longer treat schools as the other. I think it is public, public schools are the most important maybe alongside public safety, I guess, a public institution that exists. That's where the vast majority of Americans find opportunity. It's where the vast majority of Americans build a foundation in literacy, math, critical thinking skills to set them on a path to a better life, a good life. And I would see time and time again during the pandemic that schools are the other. You know, California had a economic reopening task force. Good idea. Don't know to what effect the outcome was. But a good idea. There was no one involved in a school system, no educator, on who's a member of the uh, economic reopening of the state. You go, well, how how would that make sense? Um, if you look at uh, so many of the problems that society struggle with, land themselves in public schools. Look at what we had to do in Los Angeles Unified. We set up and ran the nation's largest food relief effort ever, or none. 140 million meals to hungry children and adults. If I told you the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, the state of California had no role in it, provided no help whatsoever, you'd say, well, hang on a sec. We have this massive disruption in society. There are hungry people, children and adults. Well, let's, let's ask the school people to feed them. What? Why does that make any sense? We set up the nation's largest and most comprehensive COVID testing system. We actually backed a startup lab in Silicon Valley uh, Los Angeles Unified buys PCR tests, so the high quality ones, at 10 bucks with guaranteed overnight results when the state's paying 40 and cities and counties are paying $100. Would you have said before the pandemic that a school system should feed everybody? 
should provide COVID testing for everybody, by the way, more cost-effective than anybody else, and should provide internet connectivity to so many families who don't have access. People said, no, well, there's, this needs to be in all hands in thing, uh, but so much of government either distracted or not capable. So I think what you're seeing in San Francisco, I think what you're seeing in Virginia is a slightly different take on that, that people are frustrated for sure, but to view school, to continue to view schools as the other, I think is a huge mistake that we make in this country you know, on a repeated basis. And I hope coming out of the pandemic, people understand the importance of school board elections, the importance of holding school board members accountable, the importance of understanding what's happening in schools, the importance of asking other arms of government to roll up their sleeves and help what is going on in schools, help a teacher, help a bus driver, help a custodian, help a family, because internet access, food, COVID testing, none of those are the responsibility of schools, but we did them all because nobody else was. So Austin, the left looks at public schools and you know the course, we need more money, we want respect, we demand social justice. The right looks at public schools, Austin, what does it say? There's a lack of choice. We need to get rid of wokeism, there needs to be greater accountability. Based on what you've experienced at LAUSD, which side has it right or is there an argument for both sides? I would probably, uh, without being a little flip, Bill, I'd dismiss them both. I think they're missing the point. Okay. Door uh, number, what's what the response? What, what should be happening in a school? Yeah, what's door number three? Let's teach kids to learn to read, to write, to express themselves, to develop a fluency in math and critical thinking. That's what the role of school is. Mm -hmm. uh, the single most important thing we launched during COVID that wasn't the COVID testing. That's an enabler. That allowed us to reopen schools safely. Mm -hmm. It wasn't making sure everyone had access to Wi-Fi and providing them with computers and internet access that was keeping them connected. It wasn't food. That was just helping them get to the next day. What we launched in the spring of 2020 was a program called Primary Promise to build that foundation in literacy, math, and critical thinking. And it has been lore, in fact, in public education in high poverty school districts for more than a generation that at least half the kids are in a grade level in reading. It's actually lower than that, but I'll use half because we can do the math together. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not new. That didn't start during COVID. It didn't start uh, three years ago when I became superintendent. It didn't start 10 years ago. That's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, and nothing has been done to address that. That's the fundamental or the existential challenge in public education. If we get that right, everything that comes after uh, so many more opportunities for kids. And there's been studies and, you know, not probably not the purpose of uh, your audience or your podcast, the correlation between the foundation literacy, math, and critical thinking and a better life is hundred percent. Okay. Which means we need to build hundred uh, percent proficiency, state standard, grade level, whatever euphemism you use. So when I joined as superintendent, I spent a bunch of time visiting elementary schools saying, well, let's get to root cause. What can we do different? Now, what I would see when I go to a class is pretty instructive. So the norm of class size in, let's say, a first grade class in California is about 24 kids, state law. Right. Uh, now, what you would see, let's assume half of them are reading at grade level, proficient, state standard, whatever euphemism you want to use. That's 12 kids. Okay. You can break down early literacy, early reading into the need for phonemic awareness, which is how vowels and consonants sound, decoding, which is what a word means, or comprehension, which is putting the other pieces together. So you get those three basic skills right, you become a reader. Now, mm -hmm. what you'd see is 12 kids on track at grade level. Uh, and I'll make the math just simple. You'd see four kids who needed help in how things sound. 
sounding out the vowels and consonants. You need four kids who need help in decoding what a word meant. You need four kids who need help in comprehension. So in effect, you've got four classes going on at the same time. Now, I don't care whether how well-trained, whether union, non-union, charter, not charter, I've yet to meet a teacher who's lived and worked in a first grade classroom to say, I can teach four classes simultaneously. Okay, that's the, that's the fundamental root cause of this problem. So let's go to an affluent community with a bigger tax base, there's a second teacher in the classroom. Let's go to a private school, there's a second teacher in the classroom. Now, what does the second teacher do? They work with the kids who need individual support, individual help. It's no different, by the way, reading is no different than going to baseball practice. You see some kids taking fielding practice, some kids learning to hit a curve, uh, and some kids learning to run the bases. No different. You, you have to give kids individualized attention uh, on things so fundamental as reading. And by the way, I, I use early literacy. Early numeracy would be the same challenge. Okay. Right. right. So we said, okay, that's our existential threat. COVID comes. I have emergency authority. So everything becomes COVID as a reason to act as opposed to study. We said, all right, we know more kids are going to come back uh, with deficits in reading. Right. Some were just this computer is not made to teach a six or seven year old how to read. Sorry. In particular, when there may not be uh, uh, people at home, uh, adults who've got the time or the inclination or the ability even to help that child. So he said, OK, we don't need more assessments. So 50 percent became 40 percent at grade level or 40 became 30. So what? Mm -hmm. We started with more than half who weren't readers. Right. So we got a big problem here. Right. So we went out, we hired with the emergency authority, every reading teacher we could find. We just scraped, we signed, we posted to so every person who was already trained to be a reading teacher and said, you know what, we're going to put that second teacher alongside the classroom teacher. So the classroom teacher can work with the kids who are on track or grade level and the others would help the different things. So our first cohort of 2,500 kids started in August of 2020. By the way, while we were all still in the Zoom stuff, so still in the you know, darn computer at home, right? Right. Uh, we took 10%, that's about 10%, by the way, of Los Angeles Unified First Grade, a little less than that, struggling readers or non-readers. So 9% at grade level. By the end of one semester, nine became 42. They caught up with their peers, uh, African-American black students ahead of whites, English learners on par with their white peers. So all the mythology about some of the challenges sort of was dispensed with to say, you know what, if we give children the individualized support they need, we're going to teach them to read. Uh, we expanded it the next semester at another 2,500 kids, K-3, because just because your kindergarten year was cut short in spring of 2020 when schools closed and came back in August, the same was true for first graders and second graders. And children learned to read some as a second grader, some as a kindergartner. Mm -hmm. uh, same fantastic and dramatic result. We expanded it to numeracy. Uh, about half of the ninth graders or half of the students in Los Angeles Unified who take algebra one the first time don't pass. And that would be true again in many uh, high poverty school districts. If you look at root cause, it's because some of them or many of them don't have the numeracy that they should have received and built those uh, core skills in elementary school. So early literacy, early numeracy, so when people say it's a philosophical approach choice, well, if there's no school I can choose for my child that has that extra specialist providing the reading support, it's still not gonna work, right? If it's about uh, the values of school and the particular curriculum, uh, or you use the phrase woke, whatever you might say, uh, that still doesn't address the same issue, which is what we did 
was understand the responsibility of the school, read and write arithmetic. We build that foundation, literacy, math, critical thinking. Every child uh, is going to have that opportunity to be their own best selves. That's what we did. Uh, and I think if more of the public education conversation went about that and focused on that and the money went to that and the training, uh, we're going to see dramatic gains in outcomes for kids and much, much better outcomes. You look at the child, Austin, who is not getting fundamental skills, the literacy and the numeracy that you mentioned, and where is the breakdown in the system, Austin? Is it, is it with the teacher? Is it with the student not applying his or herself? Is it back at Well, well see, I think with the system, and this is where uh, um, I'll push a little bit uh, in terms of adequacy of funding. Mm-hmm. When I took the job as superintendent in Los Angeles Unified, the uh, the per pupil spending in California is about seventeen thousand dollars. So and we what, and, and, and what it's in New York City. It's what about twenty nine k? I think. Yeah, almost thirty. All right. Almost so you say, k. let's assume for a moment that teachers are paid about the same, the same benefits, the same costs, and electricity is expensive and everything. So you say the seventeen and thirty shouldn't be in the same equilibrium, right? Now I happen to think seventeen should be closer to thirty. You might say thirty should be closer to seventeen. We can have that debate. But lack of adequacy, because the only reason we were able to add that extra teacher to help build early literacy, early numeracy, was that one-time dollop of federal money. Now, that won't be there forever, but if we can demonstrate it works, then maybe we can have a reasoned conversation at the federal level or at the state level to say, boy, this is a place where taking $17,000 and making it nineteen dollars or whatever might be needed to say, not across the board, not smear the peanut butter around, focus on early literacy, early numeracy. And that's, by the way, order of magnitude, the investment per child to do this is about $1,000, $1,500. Mm-hmm. Not, not, you don't need $13,000. You don't need to get $30,000 to make this investment early literacy, early numeracy. So teachers working as hard as they can, students getting as much support as they can at home. What you need is that second person to provide individualized attention. It costs money. Uh, but if we can find a way to make that investment, I think the reward and the return is so far outsized uh, that, that uh, I think any reasoned person would say it's worth making the investment. Let's talk about money for a second, Austin. In June 2019, uh, you are involved along with uh, union leaders, Mayor Garcetti and other civic leaders trying to convince voters to approve a tax on real estate in Los Angeles, what we call in California parcel tax. Yep. It's raised about $500 million for LAUSD. It lost. It lost by a wide margin. Now, in California, you need two-thirds approval to pass a parcel tax, but this measure received only 46% of the vote, Austin. Now, granted, June, low turnout primary. Fast forward November 2020, there's a measure on the ballot, Austin, which would have uh, altered Proposition 13, the commercial property side of Prop 13, heavy advertising spent on Austin featuring teachers saying this is what will help ale education in California. Austin, in a year when Democrats ran wild up and down the ballot in California, this measure lost too. So your thoughts on the public's buy-in to education if they're rejecting these measures? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. First, the other thing that was on the November 2020 ballot, uh, just to remind you, was a school bond, a $7 billion school bond, the largest in the nation to right. continue their, our upgrading in school facilities in Los Angeles that passed with 71% of the voters. Okay. Uh, I think what we have been unable to do perhaps is to make a clear and reasoned argument to voters where the additional money is going to make a difference in the outcome. Uh, you know, perception might be schools are bottomless pit. Uh, the results aren't there now. We get more money, it'd be the same result, and uh, why bother? Uh, I think we can make an argument 
going back to something like primary promise to say, you know what, if 17,000 became 18 or 19,000, we can go from 50% grade level readers to 75 or 80. I think we could sell that. Mm -hmm. Now, the other challenge we face is schools are the other. And I think there are people whose children aren't, don't have children, children are no longer in schools, uh, somehow view their responsibility to society as a whole or the public good as, as detached from what happens in public schools. We have uh, roughly 600,000 some odd students uh, in Los Angeles Unified as a whole, including everything from infants and early education all the way to adult education. Uh, poverty level 85 plus percent, meaning more than 85% of students uh, come from households living below the poverty line. So when you have a system of haves and have nots, I, I think we've got to make a more compelling case and clear-eyed case to the haves uh, that the investment will produce a different outcome. Uh, but I don't think the haves can walk away from public education and say, okay, enough, uh, not my bother. Uh, I don't think that ends well. Uh, and uh, you know, Gandhi would say, judge a society by how you treat the most vulnerable. Well, I think Kids coming from a household or family living in poverty going to public school, they're amongst our most vulnerable. And if all we can do is 17,000 and New York is doing 30 and we say at 17, we can't afford that extra teacher in the classroom to implement something like Primary Promise, well then shame on us because we have to get there. We have to make something like that available to every kid. Uh, your thoughts on the future of charter schools in California? Uh, you know, I think we're sort of in this... Uh, uh, I don't want to call it stalemate, but maybe a period of digestion, which is not necessarily all bad. Uh, uh, you know, a law enacted with good faith and good intention a couple of decades ago. Uh, there's actually not enough, I believe, understood as to what the implications are, both good and bad. Uh, where is good practice? Uh, and I can tell you as a super, former superintendent uh, overseeing the second largest school system, which had the second largest number of traditional public schools and the largest number of public charter schools. Uh, I can tell you, I saw fantastic traditional schools uh, and I saw traditional schools uh, that weren't doing as much as they could and should be doing for students. And I saw fantastic charter schools and I saw charter schools that weren't and couldn't uh, say, I'm trying to repeat the same phrase, but I just said, but basically weren't doing the job for students, just like the traditional schools. So I don't think the form of governance is necessarily the answer. Now, I grew up in a choice household, but choice formed differently. My parents both worked in order to be able to pay the rent and live in a place that they perceived having better public schools. That was choice in a different way. Um, choice doesn't exist uh, for all in a sprawling community like Los Angeles. It may be limited by transportation. It may be limited by agency that a family might have. So choice is the answer alone is not sufficient. But I think we ought to be making sure every public school is doing the best job it possibly can. I think we're a long way from that. Listeners should know that before uh, you had to deal with a pandemic in Los Angeles, you had to deal with the teacher strike in January of 2019. This lasted, I think, what, Austin, six, seven days, if I remember correctly. Um, the teachers walked out. They ended up getting a 6% raise and a handful of other concessions. You saw this in other parts of California. You saw this across America and other school districts as well. There was a time, Austin, when teachers dared not walk out in the middle of a school year and not go on strike. So what, what has happened? When did the mentality change? You know, I, I don't know. I'm not an historian. In Los Angeles, it was, uh, you know, I, I think a lost opportunity. You know, what, what, 
good came of a strike like that was right. more public awareness about education. It became the topic in every household. Right. The 6% raise you spoke of was offered before the strike. So there was no change in compensation. Right. Uh, now, unfortunately, children missed millions of days of school. 600,000 people not in school every day. Right. Uh, families' lives were turned upside down uh, because they count on their child being safely at school so they can go to work. So society paid a price. I, I thought we had the wrong conversation because at the end of the day in California, there are 1,037 school districts that all their funding comes from the same place, that one building with the dome in Sacramento, capital. So a strike in Los Angeles, no different than a strike in Redwood Elementary School District with 500 some odd students, the smallest in the state. Funding all comes from the same place. So closing schools in Los Angeles didn't change the funding of schools in Los Angeles. Uh, perhaps we all should have hopped on buses and gone to Sacramento, had the conversation uh, at the state house about adequate funding of public schools because the issues that the community responded to, class sizes which are too big, or frustrations of the lack of arts and music programs, or the lack of that second teacher uh, to help with uh, individualized attention for reading or math or early numeracy, uh, those are very real. Those are real concerns of mine, but the solution didn't exist in Los Angeles. The solution exists in Sacramento. Um, you know, I found it somewhat uh, ironic, if not cynical to see elected officials from Sacramento come and walk the picket lines uh, in support of teachers. I scratch my head and go, but you are the ones who decided 17,000 was sufficient. So if you're walking the line saying class sizes need to be smaller, and you and I both know we can do the math, the only way you have a smaller class size is if you have more money to hire more teachers, right? It's not, there's, enough, there's no discretion that a school district has to make 17,000 magically a different number. So you want smaller class size? You need more funding. So if you're an elected official whose job in Sacramento is to make sure schools have what they need, don't come and stand on the line uh, uh, and tell Los Angeles Unified they need to somehow unilaterally, magically create a smaller class size. That, that is, uh, let's just say, uh, maybe hypocritical a little bit. Um, so I, I'm frustrated that we raised awareness or the strike did raise awareness, but we had really the wrong conversation as far as I'm concerned because it didn't change funding. We're talking about United Teachers Los Angeles. Austin, they accused you of uh, uh, fostering a quote and the other phrase was austerity agenda. Uh, they also at times made it very personal uh, with you, calling you millionaire Austin Butner. I noticed, by the way, after the results came in in San Francisco, the union in San Francisco also responded the same way. They just went after millionaires who gave money to the recall efforts. So um, I think also UTLA at one point, Austin was uh, espousing a millionaire's tax in California. So why, why the interest in wealth? Uh, you know, I, I would uh, refer you to um, either the teachers union in San Francisco or someone to explain that. Uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting uh, if you asked most people who work in the classroom, where are they school? Uh, classroom teacher, a bus driver, a cafeteria worker. Uh, on the lived experience, we had three years together in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them were pretty happy with the work we did together, uh, whether it was making sure kids had the opportunity to uh, uh, learn to read, whether it was the actual decentralization of the bureaucracy. When I started, there were 4,000 people in a headquarters building. When I left, there were 200. Um, nobody lost their job. They're all working at a school. That's where the job of public education happens at a school, not an office building. So I think you'd find the people who do the work saw what we could do together and are pleased with that. I, I think the uh, notion that somehow uh, demonizing a person or demonizing people uh, is going to make it better for kids in public schools. I think that misses the mark. 
So it took a few months to find your successor, but LAUSD found one. His name is Albert. I may butcher the last name, Carvalho. I hope I got that right. Uh, he comes to Los Angeles by way of Miami. He's an educator. Uh, he talks about um, uh, promoting what he calls a demand-driven reform. There's a tradition of the presidency, Austin, where the outgoing president leaves the incoming president a letter, piece of advice. Uh, I don't know if you did that for Mr. Carvalho, but if you did have some words of advice for him, what would they be? Yeah, I, I don't know him. Uh, I want him to succeed like we all should want him to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, my advice actually is pretty simple. Uh, Miami's not Los Angeles and Los Angeles is not Miami. Uh, Los Angeles is a complex, diverse uh, puzzle, you know, what is it, Churchill, a riddle wrapped within an enigma sort of thing. Right. Uh, sprawling, 700 square miles. You could put five or six or seven Miamis all into the boundaries of Los Angeles. So about, about 97 different languages in that district. 97, uh, close to 100 different languages and dialects spoken in the homes of children who come to public school in Los Angeles. So uh, my one bit of advice, get to know Los Angeles, uh, get to know each of the communities. And what we actually did, this decentralization I spoke of, to put all the money at a school and all the people at a school, uh, we organized around communities. So there are 42 local leaders now in place, uh, whether they're in Boyle Heights uh, or Wilmington, San Pedro, uh, Chatsworth, where they're much better able to respond to the needs of that local community and the families there. And I think that's a better model for public education. The notion that the answer for all 600,000 students lies in an office building uh, sort of in the center of that 700 square miles, I think is a terrible idea. I think the answers are in the school. The answers are in families more engaged. The answers are in principals and school teachers figuring out what they need to solve the problem and go solve the problem. So uh, I hope he takes the time to uh, learn to love like I did, uh, all the diversity that you can find, all the different communities and find a way to respect their voices. Let's talk about your uh, current uh, passion project, Austin, uh, your arts initiative, which I believe uh, you are in the signature gathering uh, phase right now. You haven't yes. talked about it yet. Uh, so if I understand this, so you can explain the finer details. You propose taking money from the general fund and uh, devoting it to local funding for public schools uh, to devote solely to arts and music education. Uh, I do know in your background, a little sleuthing on you, Austin, uh, you went to East Grand Rapids High, which uh, has, among other things, a very nice performing arts center. Yeah, so I, I, I'm uh, a passion project for me. Imagine that same child you spoke of. So in the immigrant journey my parents took in the 60s, by fifth grade, I was in my fifth different elementary school, mm-hmm. February 1971 to something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what was my greatest concern? Who I was going to have lunch with. I did not know a soul. You're 10 or 12 years old, uh, terrified to have lunch by yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank goodness a music teacher reached out to me and said, you know, we have this string class that's at lunch. Would you like to join us today? I didn't know what a string was. Uh, I said, sure. <laughs> Do you have lunch? Uh, he handed me a cello. I'd never seen a cello before. But the first thing I found was some friends, a sense of belonging. I developed some agency in the instrument. Cello became bass, bass became guitar. Uh, I could play in front of thousands of people before I could speak in front of tens of people. Uh, And I'll never forget that. Even to this day, if I hear the sound of a well-played cello, and that was not me, by the way, but someone playing a cello well, uh, it evokes the same feeling that some people talk about when they smell something their grandmother's cooking. So it really, for me, uh, gave me a path because a shy kid in a new school and no one to have lunch, that's not a good experience. And that typically leads to all kinds of other things, but it it was really foundation for me. And uh, as I toured schools as superintendent, 
uh, I'd ask, what can I do to help? That was my job, help the people in the school do theirs, right? Not to give them orders. And my job was to make theirs easier or better or get them the resources they needed. Top three always included arts and music, always. Uh, now in a state where less than one in five schools have a full-time arts or music program, mm -hmm. that's important. But I'd go to a school and say, top three, they'd say, uh, Mr. Whalen, uh, the principal, yeah, we'd love to have an arts program. You then talk through and it becomes additions only possible by subtraction, right? That same thing. It's the budget of the school. They don't have money for it. So you could add, you could add art, but maybe you have less math. You could add art and you have less PE. Well, that makes no sense. Let's, let's stop for a second, Austin. Are these schools that have never had arts programs or are these schools that had arts programs at one time and they were the first casualties of budget cuts? Most of the time, uh, schools that had arts programs and arts, by the way, defines everything from song and dance and theater to animation and everything in between. So right. all forms of creative expression. They once had, they were cut. Uh, and that's been a decades long process. So now we're left with this place without adequate arts and music. And I can tell you, here we are at this place in COVID recovery. The first thing a therapist or a mental health counselor would ask the child to do who's struggling, draw something, tell a story, play an instrument, sing, express yourself. We know uh, participation in arts and music helps with critical thinking skills. Uh, we know it helps with attendance. People come to school, kids come to school because they want to be part of something. And we see the correlation longer term with outcomes for students in math and all kinds of academic outcomes. Uh, and by the way, in a state where the creative economy is our single biggest employer, creative economy, if you also include tech firms, right? And so you say, does Apple's workforce look like the public school students in Los Angeles Unified Tech? No. 83% uh, Black and Latino. Uh, Apple's a long, long way from there. So our path to a more diverse and equitable society includes providing access and opportunity for students. So we started thinking about it and I got together with a group of teachers, a group of people who know about the political realm in California and said, well, let's give voters a chance to express their views on this. We're in a state with record revenue, record surplus. Uh, I don't think the likelihood of a tax cut in California is very high. And so if it becomes a choice being made as to where does the growth in the state's budget go, well, I am prepared to advocate for kids. They don't have a lobby, they don't have a union, they don't have special interests saying kids, kids, kids. Well, I'll be that. Uh, and I'd make the case that anybody's top three of what to do with this newfound wealth or riches in the state budget is let's put it back into public schools. Uh -huh. Now, I turned my baseball cap around and got together with some school administrators and school people I'd worked with and said, okay, let's make sure it goes to where we intend. Okay, just don't put money in the pot and hope it happens. So we wrote something and while I have voted for and against uh, ballot initiatives for a long, long time, I gotta be honest, this is the first one I read the whole thing because I wrote it. And it's very clear to read, 100% of the funds go to the school. Mm -hmm. The school gets to decide how to use it. Right. It has to go for new stuff. You can't just backfill your art program and then use the money you were using for art program for something else. So it's gotta go to new stuff. Uh, and it introduces a notion of transparency, which I think is a, is a fantastic idea. Each school and each school district is going to need to share publicly what they use the money for and how it made a difference for students, how it was aligned with state standards and uh, curricular ideas in arts instruction. So uh, it takes us down a path where this piece of money will go to something we know is going to benefit children. We know the transparency and accountability will be there to make sure the dollars are spent exactly as voted on, and we can do it without raising anybody's taxes. There's plenty of money to pay for it. Now, uh, 
we're early in the process. We've only been at this five or six weeks. You know the process. You submit language. The state attorney general gives you a title and summary, which we now have, and it reads uh, very succinctly, very clearly. Uh, they didn't call it Austin's Flight of Fancy or something else. It just says additional funding for arts and music in schools and makes it clear that there are no, no new taxes to be paid to make this happen. Uh, in our first five weeks of collecting signatures, we already have 350,000 signatures. Uh, so I think we're going to get there. We're going to get it on the ballot. Now, I'm pretty confident with the coalition we're building, we'll have a good story to tell. We have artists, uh, Issa Rae, Will I Am, Dr. Dre, uh, California music educators, California dance educators, California theater educators, California art educators. We've got a, a bunch of powerhouse individuals and institutions as part of this coalition. And we've done some polling and focus groups. It polls at 81% support. Uh, now I have four kids and a wife and I can't get 81% for chocolate ice cream in my household. So I, I think if we can get this on the ballot uh, and we can let people know the benefit of it, uh, we've got a very good chance of passing it and it will make an enormous difference. What this will do is put about 15,000 people working in schools to provide arts and music education, okay. about $900 million a year ongoing, which is important so that fifth grader taking cello can take it again in sixth grade. Right. So the teacher can build a program uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I I'm excited about it. I think it's an opportunity to make education, uh, that much better for children in schools. And it's going to reinforce everything we want to see happen in the public education system. Two questions, Austin. First, how would you fold it into the school day? Would this be an afternoon program after regularly scheduled uh, classes, or would this be during the school schedule itself? And second, who's going to teach the classes? And here's what I'm curious about. I, I worked in state government a long, long time ago, back in the 1990s, when you're off trying to save Russia from itself. Um, you must be proud these days of what's happened there, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, blame me. I know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, we, we were looking at education in California. We found something rather interesting. It was the problem with teacher certification, Austin. And the example we came up with was Bill Walsh. Uh, I'm not going to appeal to the older listeners of this podcast. Bill Walsh was, of course, the great pioneering football coach, won Super Bowls, the San Francisco 49ers coach to Stanford. We figured that Bill Walsh, um, as a successful NFL coach, could not teach P.E., in California high schools because he was not sufficiently credentialed to do so. So I'm curious as to who's going to be teaching in the classes. Could you bring, do you actually have to have a certified teacher to do it? Could you bring outsiders to get some sort of credential? Because God knows Los Angeles, for example, is swimming with musicians. Sure. Uh, so you asked me two questions. Remind me of the first. The, the first one is how you'd fold it in the school day. Would you make it essentially an after school program or to be part of just okay. you know, the so school question. day? We're giving the school flexibility for a really simple reason. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to accommodate as many students as possible. Right. Um, as a parent of four children, there's nothing more frustrating than sitting with your child saying, okay, you have choice between these electives. You want to take uh, robotics or you want to take theater? Well, how about both? Right. Uh, and so if a school thinks that after school theater complements uh, uh, robotics as part of the instructional day or vice versa, all good by me. Uh, and I think that's the right way to do is let the school have the flexibility to do it as long as they do it the right way, which is why it's still standards based. It's not like an after school program is not going to be uh, taught by the right set of professionals, which leads me to the second question. Uh, 15,000 people, first of all, will be the biggest influx of hiring into the public education system in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the pathways to that could be very different than what we've seen historically. I think the credentialing programs may expand capacity. Uh, they've been at some equilibrium in part because that reflects 
you know, the market signal, the number of jobs that were there send. Right. Now, if the number of jobs increase and good paying jobs, good benefits, stable employment, uh, you would expect to see the traditional providers provide more. Now, we built flexibility in so that a school might bring in someone. Uh, you know, I live in Los Angeles uh, and the uh, tale, which might be apocryphal, but I think a little bit true that every uh, wannabe screenwriter is a barista until they're a screenwriter. Well, how about you work on your screenwriting part-time and you teach part-time theater to kids and help them write screenplays. Right. Uh, every struggling musician is a barista until they, uh, I don't know if having an album is right anymore, but whatever, until Spotify decides that they're on the charts. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how about instead of being a barista, and again, nothing wrong with being a barista, but how about uh, you take your music skills uh, and teach a class? So I think this will open pathways that don't now exist uh, for people to maybe blend their experience. Uh, and for those who want to become a full-time teacher, uh, the credentialing programs will adapt. Now we built in waivers and flexibility so that uh, the goal here is to make sure kids are getting the best possible instruction and to make sure they have this opportunity to participate. And uh, the ballot language allows the flexibility to make sure that occurs. So you're proposing something that's both creative, but perhaps also ultimately vocational and that a child could you know, learn arts and could perhaps do a living on something art-based. Um, what comes to mind, Austin, is the Marvel School of Film and Movie Production, which I think is for ninth and 10th graders in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. It, it will be a high school. So, high school, so yeah. you know, some interesting things came out of the pandemic, uh, starting with the premise, the notion that just because a child or a student, young adult, uh, is in school, they're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Well, you actually got, you, they're locked in the room. You know, the windows, you can't climb out the window. So whether you have 20 kids in your class, 40 kids in class, the presumption is you're paying attention. Now, when that all goes online, that goes out the window. Uh, you can turn your screen off, you can pretend to listen, uh, and uh, you may have your screen off because you're reading a book, or you may have your screen off because you're taking a nap on the sofa. So we started with this, how do you engage students? Uh, we started a book club with Snapchat. Uh, because we knew we'd now connected every student for the first time in their life. Uh, How do we get them to read? Well, now I knew a superintendent, I could send out a note and say, read a book. And here's what I suggest. And that would probably guarantee that no student in high school would want to read that book. Uh, Not, you know, cool factor not being very high. So we reached out with SNAP to Alicia Keys and Russell Westbrook and said, you guys share a book. And the first question they asked me was, what book? And I said, no, 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 you pick. Because Ms. Gies, if it's authentic to you, your followers, if that's the right word, right. Uh, will believe it's authentic and they might read it. So we had a series of those and you'd see, because you could see in 500, you see in one hour, 500 people download the book when they're reading it. Pretty cool. We then expanded that. We got illumination to help create, co-create a class taught by teachers uh, on how to animate, how to tell stories. Uh, we actually were the world premiere of how to draw a minion and it was pretty cool. The first people to use it were actually school principals when they did their uh, staff meetings. So teachers would draw their own minion and talk about the story and so on and so forth. Uh, we got together with uh, Fender Guitar. We sent um, uh, almost 10,000 kids now a guitar to their house where they could zoom into a class. The teacher would give them the basics. They could access additional lessons online. That's going fantastic. Uh, James Cameron helped us create a class in the Voyage of the Titanic. Uh, that wove in literacy, math, critical thinking, science, and you can actually get high school credit for it. Mm-hmm. And to give you some sense of the litmus test there, he and I would start the semester and end the semester with a conversation. And then teachers would teach in the interim. 
Uh, and he brought in the Royal, there's a Royal Museum of the Titanic, something like that in London, all kinds of great resources. You know how on the bottom of a Zoom, there's a little number of participants? Yep. Uh, first time we did, there were 504 participants. Because it was Zoom, you could do it from all over Los Angeles. So it didn't have to be just James at one school with 28 kids. It could be 50 schools uh, across the uh, uh, 700 square miles. It was 504 to start. An hour and a half later, it was still 504. It's compelling. It's interesting. And so as we think about some of the things that we've taken away from the pandemic, I sure hope we don't lose that ability to innovate, to think differently about what curriculum looks like, how stories are told, how you engage students. Uh, I can guarantee you the students, the 504 students learned a lot about science and math. And think about the voyage of the Titanic. It's the science and physics of the deep sea. This anthropology and culture of all the stories of people who are on the boat and everything in between uh, told in a fascinating way. That's a class I'd like to take myself. Um, so I think there's plenty of opportunity for that to come out of this pandemic, come forward with schools uh, and make it more interesting and, and better learning, therefore, for kids. Final question for you, Austin. Uh, I've been watching the HBO show, The Gilded Age, uh, which is basically Downton Abbey comes to New York in the 1880s, and it's about living fabulously well in Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue in New York at that time. Uh, we've had something of a Gilded Age in California for the past, well, since pretty much since the information age kicked in. Uh, people in the state with dazzling wealth, people able to buy, you know, eight, nine-figure property if they want. People who could have multiple residences. Wealth manifests itself in different ways in California, Austin. Living the good life, um, you see attempts at Sacramento almost every year to go after wealth in various ways, be it higher income taxes. Um, a global wealth tax was proposed a couple of years ago. The question would be, Austin, what the responsibility is from the wealth class back to California? You know, sort of the Kennedy question about what you can do for your country. Um, this was how we began our podcast, talking about how you got involved in public service and why you felt the need to do so. But um, to those Californians who do live the good life, I think they have options in front of them, Austin. One is they could they could bail on the state if they want to, go to Texas, move to Hawaii if they want. Second, they could stay behind their gated, you know, in, behind their gates and stay out of things. And to the extent they want to engage in, you know, in political and public debates, they could welcome presidential candidates and so forth. But that's just giving money that gets taken out of California ultimately. But the third option, Austin, is to get involved. But there it gets kind of complicated if wealthy people want to get involved in politics and do ballot measures and so forth. What your advice for them in terms of getting involved? Because it's it's a tricky business because, as you know, you're dealing with consultants, you're dealing with the powers that be in Sacramento, you're putting yourself out there in terms of you know being being you know being in the public spotlight and so forth. So, what's your advice? Yeah, it's 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 the right question because I hope uh, more will choose option three. I think one and two don't end well for California. Put aside what it means for the individual. Uh, I think sometimes in California, we miss the opportunity to go from politics or policy to the implementation thereof. Uh -huh. uh, you know, how many new bills is the legislature going to pass this year? 600, 500, 1,000? Do we really need 300 or 500 new laws? I don't think so. I right. think our missed opportunity is more effective implementation of the ideas that already exist. And if you think about the individuals you're kind of referring to, maybe mostly from the private sector, who've uh, created success in their lives. And for that, they should be rewarded. For that, they should be congratulated, frankly. Now, their best help to society may be funding something. It may be rolling up their sleeves and bringing the same skills uh, that were to some effect in the private sector to the public sector. 
uh, and uh, find that place that is comfortable for them. So it's not necessarily candidate advocacy. It could be political in a small P. It could be something very local in a, in a small community. You and I have spoken before. I started a, an organization about a decade ago that provides free eyeglasses to kids in low-income communities because about one in four kids naturally need them. And if you walk into a school in a low-income community, kids don't have glasses. Called Vision to Learn. Vision to Learn. And John Hopkins' research has shown us that if the kids get glasses, they grow in leaps and bounds academically. And if they don't, they struggle. Get involved. Find an organization like that. Start your own organization. There are no shortage of problems. Try to break it down in some component part where you feel you can make a difference. And that doesn't have to be candidate advocacy. It doesn't have to be uh, investments in campaigns and things like that, because uh, there's plenty of work to be done. Um, I, I think we live in a state where it is so vast, uh, the media tend to pay attention to those with the biggest uh, megaphone, right? So an elected official here, elected official there, but that's frankly not where much of the work gets done. Uh, and so if I had any advice for someone who's had success, want to find a way to make a difference, uh, learn from the old African proverb, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? We'll find that bite that works for you. Start there and uh, keep at it. And you may find over time, you make a heck of a lot of progress. Finally, also our listeners want to learn more about your initiative. Where should they go? VoteArtsAndMind.org. Vote, V-O-T-E, ArtsAndMind.org uh, has a bunch of information. Uh, we need your support. Uh, make a contribution if you wish. Uh, volunteer your time. Grab a clipboard. Uh, stand outside your child's school. Uh, if you're really brave, go to a grocery store. The good news is uh, this one, it's not political. It feels political because the ballot, it sounds like messy. It's kind of the sausage making. Uh, but this is actually one where people will embrace you. I think in this day of COVID, you won't get too many hugs. Uh, but as I said, 81% uh, support in the polls and 19% of people in California would vote against anything, including chocolate ice cream. Uh, so grab a petition and a clipboard and get out in the neighborhood and convince uh, your friends and neighbors and colleagues at work to support you. Mr. Butner, I enjoyed the conversation. It's been too long since we've had a good chat like this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, and Bill, um, uh, you have such, uh, you're such a polymath and a facile mind. Uh, so I can't give you advice on the work you do every day, but I would encourage you to get rid of the potted plant behind you and maybe invest in something that's living and breathing. Will do, my friend. Austin, take care. Thanks. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Institute, that's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Austin Butner mentioned the website for his initiative. You can also find Austin on Twitter. His Twitter handle is, surprisingly enough, at Austin Butner. That is spelled A-U-S-T-I-N-B. E-E-U-T-N-E-R at Austin Butner. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.